Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, I'm talking to Stan Spittek, President of Fire and Life Safety Incorporated, FLS, a consulting firm that provides life safety, risk management, and emergency preparedness programs for providers of all types, with special focus on healthcare, long-term care facilities, and senior services, and a founding member of the Emergency Management Alliance about emergency preparedness in healthcare facilities in consideration of CMS requirements of participation. Mr. Spitek is a former Deputy Fire Chief and Fire Marshal with the Chicago Area Fire Department, having served the community for 26 years and honorably retired in 2003. He is also the Life Safety Disaster Planning Consultant for the Arizona Healthcare Association and California Association of Healthcare Facilities and works with several state healthcare associations and individual healthcare providers around the nation. So, Stan, welcome to First Talk Compliance. We're so happy to have you here. Can you give us an overview of the CMS Emergency Preparedness Requirements for Participation, ROP, and what sectors of healthcare do they apply to? Well, hello, and uh, thanks for having me, Catherine. Uh, I'm pleased to be here and share some information on this all-important topic. Uh, the new Emergency Preparedness uh, Requirements of Participation I have recently been reforced with enforcement starting November 15 of 2017. The proposed rule that uh, ultimately ultimately became the new ROP uh, has been around for a few years. I believe it was first proposed in December of 2013. There was opportunity for public commentary. There was a lot of debate and a lot of focus on emergency preparedness. But the reality is the driver of the um, the genesis of this new ROP was a lot of tragedy. Everything from the disaster in the southern coastal region during the Hurricane Katrina and Rita era, wildfires in the west, uh, other incidents that have impacted our nation really was the driver for CMS to look closely at um, the regulations that it was enforcing on emergency preparedness and basically um, determined that those rules um, or regulations that were in effect prior to this new rule just weren't um, comprehensive enough for the complexities associated with uh, emergency or disaster management. So like I said, a lot of work uh, went into the development of these requirements and they affect 17 different provider types that are out there. Everything from long-term care facilities to nursing homes to hospices to uh, federally regulated community health centers to ambulatory surgical centers. 17 different CMS receivers or provider types of funds from CMS are impacted in varying uh, levels of this new rule. Again, extremely comprehensive, puts a whole lot more focus on emergency preparedness in these types of healthcare facilities. And for some, it's it's really turning out to be a real challenge. So what's been your general experience with providers that have addressing of these new ROP? Well, you know, in general, it's been somewhat of a heavy lift. 
Now, I certainly have worked with providers that I've consulted with that, um, you know, we've helped prepare them to be ready for this new requirement. They've um, been ahead of the, the compliance curve. But for those providers that kind of, you know, sat on their hands to wait and see how enforcement was going to shake out, it's been challenging. There has been a lot of enforcement that's been variable in nature. Some providers, and again, my experience is really focused on long-term care. I do some work with hospitals and hospice, a few ambulatory care facilities. But in general, my experience with the nursing homes and the senior services providers is the surveyors are really taking a close look at these regulations. And they're really taking a close look at how the providers are implementing. Because one of the biggest changes in the entire approach is this. It's no longer focused on having an emergency plan. The new CMS regulations are basically taking a programmatic approach to planning and preparedness and recovery and saying that you don't only have a plan, but you need to have a multi-dimensional program in place to meet the elements of an emergency. That could be an internal fire. It could be a flood, a power failure, an active shooter on the loose in the community where your facility needs to go into a lockdown, acts of violence within your facility, a murder-suicide, employee-on-employee aggression or violence. You know, it's all about having a program in place that uh, will meet the needs of an emergency. You know, similar to my experiences as a firefighter. When I got on the fire department as a kid in high school, and that's what, what I literally was, I started in 1977 as a cadet while I was in high school. Uh, the community that I lived in had a program, and that program was designed to mentor and um, cultivate young men and young women into being firefighters. I fortunately uh, took advantage of that program, ended up becoming a career firefighter, retiring as deputy fire chief and fire marshal. But when I think back to the early days of my time on the fire department or anyone's time on the fire department, it was all about put the wet stuff on the red stuff. Being a firefighter was uh, putting out fires. And then we started to become responders to emergency medical incidents. And then it became hazardous material incidents. Then all of a sudden, our firefighters and our community's first responders became the first responders to weapons of mass destruction on 9-11 and other events, including technical rescue and so forth. Think about those firefighters that you know and love in your family today. They're not just putting fires out and rescuing cats and trees anymore. They're out there responding to every conceivable type of emergency. And that's what healthcare needs to do. You've got to expect, if you're a hospital, that someone might walk into your facility contaminated by some type of white powder. If you're a surgical center, you've got to anticipate any kind of act of violence that occurs in the waiting room subsequent to a controversial case that's happening in your surgical suite. If you're a nursing home, you know, there's end-of-life issues that impact people emotionally, and it's not uncommon in senior care to hear of a murder-suicide or mercy killing. So you've got to have an all-hazards approach that encompasses everything, and that's kind of the evolution of why the program has become so comprehensive. Gosh, and I'm thinking about in the fall, we had this past with the hurricane, that case that was so prevalent in Florida where there was the hurricane and then the generators went down and it was so hot. 
No, that, that's a, right. that is a perfect example of um, how complex an emergency could be. You know, what I know of that particular case, as well as others, or other incidents, including those wildfires that happened last mm -hmm. year in Northern California, where several healthcare facilities burned, some of them burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, there are nuances to emergency right. management. Uh, the generator might have not failed in the facility, but the question is, mm. was the facility's air conditioning on those generators? Or did those people that were in that facility get acclimated to a new normal that they didn't even realize the unfolding disaster that was happening right underneath their nose? So yes, right. Florida, Texas, California, all unfortunately good examples of how impactful real-world events can be. Right, and you have these layers of disaster upon disaster, all these nuances. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, all these examples of, of challenges. So how has enforcement been? As I mentioned, my experience, and again, I'm a consultant that works with providers in Arizona, in California through their associations. I also work with some large national chains where I get to kind of keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening in facilities. And in a word, it's variable. We've got some survey uh, processes that have occurred where uh, the approach has been extremely reasonable and acknowledges that it's a learning curve for the surveyors as much as it is for the providers. In other instances, I'm um, seeing situations where surveyors are coming in with uh, a sharp pencil point and they're looking for compliance to the exact letter of the code or the regulation. Uh, it's causing a lot of frustration for my clients and members that I work with with the different associations. It's causing a lot of pain for some of these national large multi-providers with facilities in multi-states because they could have a good survey in an east coast state, a moderate survey in the west, and then all of a sudden they get slammed to the mat someplace in the midwest where um, their plan, their documents that they have in place are exactly the same, but like anything with the survey process, uh, it's how the surveyor uh, views and interprets it. Now the good news is there are interpretive guidelines out there for the surveyors to follow. The clients that I work with, uh, we provide them a lot of consultative assistance to make sure that their efforts are in, are aligned with all the guidance that's out there. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of um, resources out there. The other part of good news that I wanted to mention uh, is that the Tags that are being associated with deficiencies, known as E-tags, E for emergency tags. They're coming out with a lesser level of deficiency this first year. There aren't going to be any penalties associated with lack of compliance. But as things start to shake out, and I went to a FEMA class just the other day where FEMA was there uh, doing a program, an eight-hour program, on compliance with these new CMS requirements. This first year is all about data gathering. And once they start to identify the trends, the gaps, the vulnerabilities, the opportunities for improvement, then we're probably going to see some more um, focus on uh, specific areas that will need to be addressed. So what types of e-tags are you commonly seeing issued? Well, like I said, a major philosophical and cultural change in the enforcement of these ROPs is that you as a provider, if you're being surveyed, you need to communicate 
that you have got an emergency preparedness program, not just a plan. You've got to acknowledge and be able to communicate that you've got uh, a programmatic approach that includes a plan, policies and procedures, assets, supplies, materials. And I think one of the, the, the major challenges is that providers don't have that true understanding of the, the programmatic approach. A few specific things that are out there uh, is, for example, many providers are getting the tag for not having a policy and procedure in place to manage volunteers that may spontaneously evolve during a disaster and they don't have emergency staffing strategies in place. You know, anytime those floodwaters rise, the fire looms closer, uh, whatever the circumstances of the disaster or emergency might be, staffing is always a critical issue. The issue with volunteers is CMS, and I think rightfully so, wants to make sure that in the context of an emergency, where you know you're being pulled in so many different directions you don't make the decision of just let letting volunteers enter your facility have access to your patients have access to medications to critical information there has historically been many instances where whether it was Katrina or 9-11 on the pile in New York City people show up and they project that they're there to help but they're there for malicious or other criminal purposes. So you've got to protect um, your folks. So volunteer management, um, emergency staffing strategies. Another one is a plan for sewer treat, uh, for sewer failure. That's a tag that I'm seeing frequently. Um, a lot of facilities or providers will say they got a really robust and comprehensive plan, but the regs say that you've got to have a plan if the toilets don't flush, if you don't have a sewer system available to you. Another one is um, tag E15, and that one is focused on subsistence. Subsistence is the stuff that you need, the supplies, the people, the emergency power. Um, a lot of it is focused on the needs of the residents and the staff themselves, but a new provision that's now on the radar screen is a facility has to also provide alternate power provisions to make sure that they can maintain appropriate temperatures in a building, not just for the residents or the staff, but to store food, medical supplies, and other provisions. So again, just to give you an idea of how comprehensive this is, these ROPs really drill down into the weeds of a lot of elements that people just take for granted. So if there's so many regs and tips, it's, it's super wonderful, but what are some tips for success in complying with them if there's so many? Well, you know, success is going to require a commitment. It's going to probably require some capital uh, in respect to training and testing, drills and exercise. Maybe some overtime is going to be required. Uh, after you do an assessment of your capabilities and capacities, you might determine that you need uh, some new stuff to maintain the subsistence requirements within the facility. And that's probably another one of the challenges that's out there. CMS has put on some significant requirements that providers never had in place before. When it came to training drills and exercises, it was pretty much all about doing a fire drill in accordance with life safety requirements, which are one per shift per quarter. 
So in essence, you would do 12 fire drills. The new regulations state that you've got to train your staff on an all-hazards approach. You've got to do drills and exercises, not only internally with your own staffing and resident resources. The new requirements um, state that you've got to participate in a community-wide drill on an annual basis. You've got to be connected with the healthcare coalitions that are out there. You've got to have relationships with fire, police, EMS, other like facilities. They might be your competitors during normal operations, but when an, an emergency or disaster strikes, these competitors need to become your allies. You've got to have relationships with the hospitals, with the surgical centers, with those other 17 provider types in your area, because Managing these kinds of emergencies is really all about uh, coalition and collaboration and cooperation. As a matter of fact, that's one of the specific tags uh, of the new e-tags. You will need to have to adequately demonstrate to the surveyor that you are collaborating and cooperating. You're going to have to show evidence that you're going to coalition meetings, that you're participating in these drills. Now, there are a couple of, of caveats to the exercise requirements. Probably one of the biggest challenges is for a nursing home, for example, or maybe a small six-bed hospice facility to get connected with the community. So you mean we've got to be involved with a major disaster drill that involves the entire community? The answer is yes. But it's all about getting these relationships in place long before a disaster ever occurs so that we can focus on success. One thing that I didn't really mention earlier that I should have, a big component of the new requirements of participation is risk assessment. For those of you in healthcare, you know it's been all about self-assessment and risk assessment. And when it comes to disaster, it's no exception. One of the requirements of participation is that you conduct a risk assessment of your individual facilities, capacities, and capabilities, along with hazard vulnerabilities. You've got to know what threats and perils are going to impact your healthcare facility, regardless of what type you are. And then you've got to develop your plans, your policies and procedures, and all your protocols based on that specific risk assessment. Now there's a ton of tools that are out there. Many of the state healthcare associations, including Arizona and California, have disaster sections on their websites. Most of the information, if not all of it, is free and accessible to anyone. At the hospital association and the healthcare uh, clinic association, there are similar resources available with those uh, different associations that are out there state to state or even nationally. Very, very good information. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Stan Spitek, President of Fire and Life Safety Incorporated and founding member of the Emergency Management Alliance. I know you had mentioned previously a little bit of information about sheltering in place and sustenance. Can you tell a little bit more information about that? You know, when I teach uh, emergency preparedness um, at these different state associations that I work with, we focus on that all-hazards approach. But one of the most critical decisions that any healthcare provider is going to make in um, the commission of a true emergency situation is, should I stay or should I go? 
And that's what the new regulation really focuses on. A lot of the provision is focused on sheltering in place versus evacuation. What is the issue? You know, we think back to when we were in school. The fire alarm rang in the school building. We all stood up. We walked out of the building single file, and we relocated to a far corner of the parking lot until we received an all clear. By design, healthcare facilities um, don't evacuate externally under normal situations. There are provisions in place for a healthcare facility to horizontally or vertically evacuate from one smoke compartment to another. But what happens when the scope of the disaster is so severe that the healthcare facility is uninhabitable? Well, then we've got to evacuate the building. But what's the problem with evacuation. You know, and I can cite to you examples from Joplin and the EF5 tornado that tore through there in 2011. I can talk about the tragedy that occurred in West Texas when a fertilizer plant blew up and displaced over 120 residents because it was nearby when that detonation occurred. But without getting specific, the bottom line is evacuation has serious consequences to the patient population and also poses safety uh, risk to those that are involved with the evacuation, like staff and volunteers. But just maintaining our focus on the patient, for example, or for a second, this is just a reality. I've read studies where up to 30% of the patient population that has to be evacuated in an emergency or a disaster is going to suffer some extremely tragic consequences, including death, to a pretty high rate. So should I stay or should I go? I mean, it basically boils down to what is the best situation for the resident as well as staff and to some degree family members as well because family will show up at the facility. You've got to make sure that you maintain life safety uh, conditions in your building if you are sheltering in place. You've got to monitor temperatures. You've got to make sure that you're rationing food. One of the things that I do when I um, conduct a tabletop exercise is that we put in a scenario where a facility has to uh, shelter in place, where family members and staff members' families show up, where there's a limited uh, supply of food. And I challenge the, um, the folks participating in the exercise, how are you going to manage this? Are you going to start rationing food? Are you going to put someone to maintain security on your water and medication supply? There's so many uh, different nuances that come with this, but back to my original point, should I stay or should I go? That's a decision that you and your team in a healthcare facility have to be prepared to answer because there's consequences in either direction the way you answer that question. That is such an interesting question. That's very interesting. You could start going off on so many so many interesting tangents. I bet that's a very, very interesting exercise. You know, it becomes, it, it is, it's scenario dependent. It's right. patient uh, dependent. There's no single answer. You can't just right. have a procedure that says, hurricane's coming, we're going to evacuate. Um, wildfire is nearby, we're going right. to evacuate. There's, there's factors that have got to be considered. Right. Yeah. Good. So where can a provider seek help on complying with ROPs? Well, one nationally accessible website is run by Asper Tracy. So that's an acronym, A-S-P-R-T-R-A-C-I-E. It's out of the Secretary of Preparedness's office. And if you want to get a feel for how serious federal and state governments are taking this rule, all you need to do is go 
and you're going to see all the resource information that's on that website. So to me, and my perspective as a former government official in a local jurisdiction responsible for this kind of enforcement, and now as a consultant helping people navigate these choppy waters, uh, it's just telling me, boy, the state and federal governments have put so much effort and resource into providing good resource information. They're taking it seriously and uh, getting on an ed editorial soapbox for a quick moment here. We all have to take this seriously. So how does your company assist providers with complying with ROPs? Well, we put boots on the ground. We do consultative calls. I get in. Uh, I was just in Kentucky at a provider. Last week, I meet with the staff. I do the same kinds of things that a surveyor would do, basically in the realm of uh, mock life safety or mock emergency safety, mock emergency preparedness safety surveys. You know, you've got to peel back the outside layers. You've got to look and make sure that facilities aren't just checking boxes because the surveyors are going to be looking for dimension. They're going to be looking for knowledge base. And my company goes in and consults with different providers. Again, a lot of long-term care facilities, but some hospice and hospitals. And uh, I work with your team to help cultivate. I mean, it's unusual, but not un uh, out of the ordinary, to have um, somebody within your organization that's got some kind of experience. And sometimes it's not the most obvious person. You might have a cook in the kitchen that has experience as a firefighter or has some military experience. You might have a maintenance director that's a former police officer. You've got to really look at your uh, employees and see who are the most capable to help you with this um, with this programmatic approach. And, and, and I do a lot of that. I assess the employees. I assess the program. I look at the plans, and I provide resources to help these providers become compliant. Great. And I wanted to thank you, Stan, so much for joining us today. I wanted to thank our listeners also for joining us. And it was a great conversation. I learned a whole lot here, and I know that our listeners did as well. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. It was a gas. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or at hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at KatherineShort at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short at First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, Compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.